you all can take a seat. I just want to say, if you got prayed over there or have ever been prayed over and God has done something miraculous in your life, please let us know. We've had situations where people have come and told us like, oh, eight years ago, God healed me from cancer. And we're like, that is amazing. We would have loved to tell that story eight years ago. Because, you know, so it, it's easy for me to stand on stage and act really confident. And I, I believe that God can do amazing things, but it's really also really cool to be able to hear the stories. And I, I just love stories. I love people's stories. I love hearing what God is doing in, in, in your life. I love all of those kinds of things. And it's really encouraging when, when you get to hear and see this is what God is doing. This is how God is healing. This is what, what God has done in our midst. And then, be, and then to be able to take those with permission, of course, and, and be able to share them from the stage because that just really builds up people's faith. So that's all to say, if you, if God has done something in your life, been healed, whatever, please let us know some way. Go on our website. We have a lot of different ways to connect with us. We'd love to, to hear what's going on in your life. Um, all right. Well, this Sunday is the last Sunday of our summer series that we've been calling Summertime Stories. And I know some people in the room might be a little bit sad, and it's obviously not because winter's coming and school started, um, but you're a little sad because you really enjoyed this series, right? Obviously, it's nothing to do with the, the minus 40 degree weather that's eventually coming, and I'm going to pay for that one later. My wife does not like when I remind her of that. Um, <laughs> but but we, this is the last sun, Sunday of our, our Summertime Story series where we've really just been exploring the lives and stories of some of the most broken, damaged, and hurt people in the Old Testament. We've examined the lives of people like Gideon, who, who God used despite his inability, despite his weakness to free the nation of Israel. We've examined the story of Jonah, this prophet who God spoke to, and who's like, uh, yeah, God, that's great. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. God still used him. Explored the story of, of Ruth, who is one of the only good stories we've really shared this summer of somebody who's actually truly good, and, and how though she should have been disqualified, God still used her. And, and Dan took us through the story of Samson, this broken, lost kid with a lot of power, but no purpose. Purpose that he didn't understand, and how despite being lost and broken, God still worked through him. And, and, and last week, Spencer took us into the story of Joshua, and I really want to focus on the story of Joshua this morning, because the story of Joshua is one of those stories for me that I find really is impactful for my own life. Like, how many of you have ever read a book where, as you're reading it, maybe it's fiction, maybe it's nonfiction, but you see the character and you're like, I wish I was like that person. Anybody? A few? Okay, all right, all right. That's Joshua for me. Because the story of Joshua really is one of problem after problem after problem after problem after problem after problem after problem. After problem, after problem. It, it, it's a brutal story. But Joshua, the whole time, is just like, I trust God. And I'm like, I wish I could be more like Joshua, because if I'm being honest with you, I don't trust God as much as I'd like to. I don't trust God as much as I should, and that's an area of constant growth in my life. Anyone willing to admit that they don't trust God as much as they should in this room? Come on. Um, but it, it, because it's hard, you know. 
When life gets difficult, when, when struggles happen, it's hard to trust God. When you have nonstop problems and issues coming up in your life, it's hard to trust God. And so the story of Joshua really is a story of a guy who I wish I could be more like. And so this morning, I want to take us through uh, Joshua chapter 6. We're not going to get to the whole story of Joshua because there's literally a book in the Bible called Joshua. And unless you want me to be here talking to you for four or five hours, we're going to focus on one chapter. Um, but I want to focus on, on Joshua 6. And if you want to read the rest of the story later, you, you can. It's really handy. It has his name on the title of the book. Just read that one, um, and you'll get the whole story of Joshua. But it's specifically the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. It says, Joshua 6, verse 1, Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. No one came out, and no one went in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you. I want to pause there for a moment, because I think this is silly. Walled city, gates are shut, Nobody's going in, and nobody's going out. And God's like, hey, Joshua, guess what? See? See how strong that city is? That's proof that they've already fallen to you. God, could you have uh, maybe broken a hole in the wall or torn down the gates or something as proof? But no, no, no. God's like, the fact that they're afraid, the fact that they're afraid proves that I've already won. So see, I have handed Jericho over to you, along with its king and soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. You can go to the next slide. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. So Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. To the people, he said, Go forward and march around the city. And it's an interesting story, you know. Because Joshua is in a situation where he's faced with a walled city. And if you know anything about ancient warfare, walled cities, hard to conquer. And God comes to him and he's like, guess what? I have already given you the city. Yay! Now what you need to do is take a daily hike around the walls. And after seven days, do seven rotations around the walls and shout. And the walls will fall. And what's crazy and what I love about the story of Joshua and this story in particular is Joshua does it. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't say, oh, God, there must be a better plan. He's just like, he goes immediately and he's like, priests, do this. Men, do this. We're going to do this. We're going to take this city. So this morning, I want to focus on, through the story of Joshua, I want to examine the idea of having faith before the fight. Faith before the fight. Because, you know, this is a lesson that God has been teaching me over and 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 over again that I still haven't really gotten into my soul and that it can be difficult in moments of trouble and of trial and of struggle to actually trust God no matter what. 
No matter what problem comes my way, no matter what problem that happens in my life, no matter how big the problem might seem, to actually trust God. And, and what I really want to focus on this morning is, is the reality that sometimes in order to have faith to defeat a city like Jericho or to defeat a problem as large as Jericho, sometimes it's important that we begin to learn to have faith when it's easy. So that when we get to the fight, we'll have actually learned through the easier situations that it doesn't matter how big the walls are. It doesn't matter how many people are trying to take us out. We can still trust God. Faith before the fight. You know, anyone who knows me to a decent level knows that my personality is one that is literally called the debater. Like, I'm not, I'm not kidding. If it, it's 16personalities.com tells, like, they, they give you Myers-Briggs, and then they give a one-word summary of who you are as a person. And for me, for the last, like, 10 years that I've done Myers-Briggs tests, it's always been the debater, which really is just to say that I'm not somebody who, when I care about something, I'm not willing to back down from a fight. It's like if something matters to me, I am willing to just duke it out with somebody, not physically, but verbally, you know. I like to debate things um, with people and, and discuss things. And, and the struggle that I've had in my life and that God's really been working on me with is to begin to discern what actually matters. Like what fights are actually worth having. Because when I was in college, I would pick fights about anything. For instance, what kind of flavor of ice cream is better? Chocolate or vanilla? I remember having a debate with some of my roommates about this. Quick poll. If you, had, if you were at an ice cream shop and you wanted ice cream, and you had two flavors to choose from, chocolate or vanilla, how many of you, by show of hands, would choose vanilla? Okay. Okay. And how many would choose chocolate? Okay. All right. I think, I think there's a few more for chocolate, but I can't be sure. I didn't, can't count that fast. Um, but that was legitimately a debate I had with roommates. Or, or if I were to take a survey of the room right now, how many of you would have an Android phone? Okay. And how many would have an iPhone? Okay. All right. All right. Again, legitimate debate because I was convinced that iPhones were the worst phones in the entire universe and that you should have an Android and if you don't then you are just not a good person. That was me in college. God has really worked on me. Because um, it's a debate that doesn't matter, right? Or, or how about this? Which sports team is better? Edmonton Oilers or Calgary Flames? <laughs> I, I was expecting that kind of reaction. Obviously, Edmonton. We live in Edmonton. Um, I never actually had that debate because don't crucify me. I don't watch hockey. I'm not Canadian enough, apparently. Uh, I'm a football guy. I like to watch the NFL, but that's about it. I can't, I can't handle watching hockey every day of the week. Um, <laughs> but, but these were legitimate things that I talked about and debated with my roommates about, with my roommates about, is... Stupid things like ice cream flavors and phones and gaming consoles and this is better than that. And it, it was just stupid, silly things. And, and what God has taught me over time is sometimes the things that 
we get really passionate about aren't things that matter. See, sometimes in your life, you will come to a place where you get really passionate about a topic, and you will definitely find somebody who disagrees with you. And often in those moments, you have to have the discernment to realize this doesn't matter because engaging in this debate is just going to distract you from the future that God has for you. Like, legitimately, I've had people email the church before uh, and tell me, oh, you guys preach too much about God's love. You need to focus more on God's judgment. I'm just like, and I've wanted to engage with them, but God's like, how about, uh, how about you just focus on this? Me. Like, this doesn't matter. They can do what they want. You can do what you want. But let's just focus on Jesus instead. And I wish I could go back to high school me and shake myself and tell myself, like, you don't need to pick a fight with your dad every single day for no reason. It doesn't matter. Because however many years later, you're going to miss those moments you could have had. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's, we need to have discernment to say this, this isn't something that matters. This is just a distraction. But sometimes you'll come to a place, to a fight, to a problem, to an issue, to something that is standing in the way of what God is calling you to do, of where God is calling you to go. Something that seems insurmountable, that seems impossible to overcome, that makes you want to just curl up in a ball and, and die or, or run away. And the reality is that sometimes in those moments, there will be play problems that come that if you run away from, you will just be running away from what God has for you. And so it's important that we begin to realize and learn and have discernment to ignore the problems that are just distractions standing in our way but to face the problems that are big, that are in our way, that we need to overcome in order to receive what God has for us. We need to learn to have faith before the fight. Now, you know, the story of Joshua is really one that is defined uh, by problem after problem after problem after problem, and all just continuous problems experienced all throughout Joshua's life as he walked in pursuit of a promise that God had given the people of Israel. And we know that it started for Joshua when he was born into slavery in Egypt before the Exodus. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when Joshua was born, but we know how old he was when he died, and we know approximately the date that he died. And so we know based on all the other dates that Joshua probably was a toddler somewhere between like 2 and 12 years old during the Exodus. When Israel went from being slaves in Egypt to being set free because God, well, unleashed 12 plagues upon the Egyptians until they finally said, okay, get out of here, please. So he would have had a problem, slavery, and then God brought him through it. And then the next thing that we see in the story is, is they come to this body of water and, and they're camping there and the Egyptians are like, well, we shouldn't have let those slaves go free. Let, those 12 plagues were nothing. Those, um, our, all of our firstborn dying, that was not enough. Let's go capture the Israelites again. And so they go after them and, and, and it's a problem and God splits the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground and then shuts the Red Sea so that the Egyptians drown. So we've seen God do something incredible in an impossible situation. And then the next thing we see is wandering through the wilderness, Israel has numerous problems. Lack of food, so God sends the manna, form of bread, and quails. Lack of water, so God provides water from rocks and purifies 
lakes and things. There's enemies that attack them, so God provides a way and helps them to fight the enemies and to defeat them. And by the time we see Joshua start to appear in the story, Israel is right near the border of the promised land. They are almost at the place where God had called them to be. And Joshua is one of the 12 spies that they send into the land to say, hey, scout out the land, let's see what it has. And he is one of only two who come back and say, they have powerful men, there are giants living there, there are, they are very powerful, but guess what? Our God is more powerful. But the other 10 spies, they came back and were like, no, they're too powerful for us. We should just, no, no, we're not, we're not going. And so there's an uproar, and the people decide, well, God isn't great enough to help us defeat these enemies, so obviously let's just go back to Egypt. And then Joshua would have watched, he's likely in his 20s at this point, he would have watched as all of his friends, his family, their leader Moses, his mentor, all die in the wilderness because they were too afraid to claim the promise that God had given them. And then Joshua now as the leader, he, he sets out with the people. They come to the Jordan River and it's impossible to cross in this season and, and God stops the water so they can cross through. And it's similar miracle to, to when God took, or took them through the Red Sea and split the Red Sea and it's this amazing moment. But now Joshua has come to a walled city, to a fortress, to a location that is fortified and secure, that is guarding the path into the land that he needs to defeat in order for them to claim the promise God had given them. And now, we don't really know from, based on archaeology, what exactly Jericho looked like or what we don't even really understand what, what exactly the walls would have been because at this point in history, Jericho would have been already 9,000 years old and from about 10,000 BC, it had walls. So by this point, by archaeologists, it's really difficult to discern exactly what Jericho looked like, how fortified it was, how large it was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we do know about Jericho, whether it was a large city or a small garrison with a couple men, we do know that Jericho had walls, it had gates, and it had an inn within the walls. And, this is the best part, the most complicated part of taking the city, it had a bunch of men inside of it that wanted to kill every single Israelite if they tried to take the city. And so Joshua is faced with this problem that he must overcome. And it's gone, he, this is a new situation. Because now Joshua is the leader of the people of Israel. Moses is dead. All of the miracles that they had seen God do through Moses, that was great, but Moses is dead. The only miracle Joshua has done so far is exactly what Moses had done. And, and they're in this situation where Joshua, he's gone from being the second chair to being the first chair. And let me tell you, going from second chair to first chair, a lot more difficult than you think. Because the level of leadership, you, it doesn't even compare. The level of responsibility. And Joshua is in a place where this is the first big obstacle that they likely have never encountered before, and he has to make a decision. How are we going to defeat the city? Because there's a not zero percent chance that if he fails, the people of Israel will be like, ah, oh, that was great. Good job, Joshua. We're going to go back to the wilderness. And to make matters worse, in, in this period, 
siege warfare or the type of war that was required to, to take out a fortified city wasn't super well developed. It's not like in the late medieval period where you'd have catapults and trebuchets and cannons and things to tear down city walls. In this period of time, there was three ways you could tear down a city's wall. Well, not tear down a city's wall, but three ways you could conquer a, a, a city that had walls. One was go over, which meant climbing ladders or building a ramp of earth up to the height of the wall while the men on the wall are throwing stones and hot oil and shooting arrows at you. So just a lovely encounter. Number two was go through, which meant battering ram, attacking the gate, trying to take down the gate. Again, while the men on the walls are shooting arrows at you and dropping rocks on you and pouring boiling oil. Just all kinds of lots of fun ways of, of conquering a city. And three was to surround it, and this was the most popular way even in the medieval period, was to surround the city and just wait for them to starve. But, you know, for people who are kind of just trusting God, none of these options sound great. Because one and two mean losing a lot of men, and three means a long, long time. Because we know Jericho had a natural spring inside, so they wouldn't have run out of water. It would just been a matter of waiting for all of their food to be eaten before they would have come. So it would have probably taken like a year or more. And Joshua has to figure out, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make a way through this situation? And he has to decide, do I trust God or do I not? When life is easy, do I trust God or do I not? When the world tells me to do something one way but God tells me to do another way, do I trust God or do I not? When the kids are just fighting nonstop and why won't they stop fighting? What can I do for this? Do I trust God or do I not? My dad is diagnosed with dementia and there's no cure. Do I trust God or do I not? When life gets difficult and I'm uncertain and I don't know how to overcome or what to do to get through, do I trust God? Or do I not? And Joshua is at the city. And God gives him the weirdest plan ever. Take a hike around the city. A bunch of times, a bunch of days in a row. And I'll deal with it. And Joshua is like, well, God, I've seen you do it before. I've seen you overcome problems before. So whatever you say, whatever you tell me to do, I will do. No, the story of Joshua reminds me of another story, this one in the New Testament. A story from Matthew 14. And in this story, we, we see Jesus, he has just fed a group of about 5,000 men. It doesn't include, the count doesn't include the women and children, so likely we're talking like 10 to 12,000 people. And he took four loaves and two fish and multiplied it into enough food for all of these people to eat. And then they go and they gather up the baskets that remain and they get 12 baskets back. It's just a wild situation. Jesus makes a magical buffet in front of them. Um, and afterwards, 
he goes and he, he tells his disciples, get into the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. And then he goes and he, he goes up a mountain to pray. And, and in the middle of the night, as the disciples are making their way, the storm has arisen. And, and storms in the Sea of Galilee were really dangerous because they often would sink the boats. And, and, and it was really difficult to survive these storms. And, and the storm has arisen and they're trying to make their way across the, the sea. And, and as they do, Jesus just nonchalantly is walking along on the water and they see him. And they're like, ah, it's a ghost. And after Jesus is like, no, 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 it's, it's me. Calm down. It's okay. After that, Peter, one of his disciples, who's in the boat, he says, well, Jesus, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter steps out of the boat and he's walking on the water, but it tells us that, that as he's walking on the water, he begins to notice, oh, there's a storm around. He sees the wind blowing, the giant waves crashing around him, and he begins to panic. And often we, we like to read the story of Peter in this moment and, and judge him because, come on, Peter, you were walking on water. But, you know, I think, Often, at least in my life, and maybe you can relate to this, but often in my life when I'm walking in faith and doing something that seems impossible or doing something that I don't know how to do, often I find I can be like Peter, and when I see how big the situation is and how insane it is and how difficult it is and how I'm just like in a situation where I'm like, God, if you don't save me in this moment, there's nothing I can do. Often I find I can panic too. It's easy to panic when the problems seem overwhelming. But what I love about this story is Peter's reaction. It says, verse 30, But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I love that. Peter's just been walking on water. He gets scared. And his first reaction is, Jesus, help. And then the next verse says, Jesus immediately caught, reached out his hand and caught him, which I love because it means that Jesus was close. Jesus wasn't like 50 meters away and like, Peter, I'm coming to you, and then grabbing him at the last second. No, no, no. Peter begins to sink. Lord, save me. And Jesus just grabs him. He's close. Saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I think often we read this verse as like, you of little faith, why did you doubt Peter? But really, I think Jesus was just saying to him, like, hey, you don't need to doubt. I said you could walk on water. I told you to come. And when I say to do something, nothing can take you out. When I say to walk on water, nothing can stop you. When I say to heal the sick, nothing can stop you. When I say to go and preach the gospel, nothing can stop you. Problems might arise, but if I told you to go, you can trust me. Peter, you don't need to doubt me. I've shown you who I am. I've shown you what I did. Why did you doubt? Jesus is teaching him, have faith in me. Learn to develop faith in God before the problems arise. 
You see, Joshua didn't defeat Jericho because he felt good in the moment. Got caught up in a frenzy, and then they marched around the city, and he was just like, yeah! No, Joshua trusted God in that moment because all his life he would trusted God. And he'd learned through all of his life that if he just trusts God and follows what God says, God will make it rain bread. You don't have food? Okay, I'll just trust God. And oh, look at that. It's raining bread. Like, like he, he had learned throughout his life, no matter what the situation was, no matter how big the problem was, to trust God. Peter trusted God to walk on water, or Jesus to walk on water, not because he got caught up in the moment, but because he had learned through all of the situations that happened before this, that if Jesus says something, he can do it. You know, you don't step out of a boat and wa- try to walk on water just because you think a guy's cool. You do that because you're like, well, he's healed people before, so maybe he can do this too. You, you have to have a level of faith. In the story of David and Goliath, David didn't attack Goliath because he felt good in the moment, like, oh, I'm just going to be the best guy and take him out. No, David attacked Goliath because he's like, well, whenever I was watching the sheep and a lion or a bear came, God gave me the strength to defeat them. So what's the difference between them and the guy who is seven feet tall? If you don't learn to trust God before the problems arise in the little things, how are you going to trust God in the big things? If you don't learn to trust God with your finances when you have a good job, how are you going to, learn to, how are you going to trust Him when you lose your job? If you don't learn to trust God when you're single looking for a spouse, how are you going to trust Him when you realize that marriage isn't as easy as people make it think? If you don't learn to trust God when your life seems perfect and easy and to rely on Him even when it's easy, how are you going to trust Him when when you suffer abuse and mistreatment at the hands of, of broken people? We need to have faith before the fight because when we learn to trust God before we have to trust God, that will give us the strength in the moments where we are struggling and where we don't know what to do to trust Him despite the problem. And Joshua trusts God. And they walk around the city. They are obedient to God. And the walls fall down. And the battle is won. But you know, this is where, this is where most pastors like to end the message on Joshua. Because this is where the story takes a turn. And this is where the story gets a little bit crazy. And it kind of offends our modern sensibilities. And often, Christians, we like to whitewash the Bible and just pretend that anything bad didn't happen. But this is where the story takes a turn. This is Joshua 6, verse 17. Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. This is as they're making that final rotation around the city. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers we sent. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. And this is the part of the story that we usually try to skip. Because the reality is that ancient warfare was brutal. Warfare in general is brutal. Good people die. And often in in this time period, what would happen is you'd siege a city, and then after you captured the city, well, the army was pretty ticked off that they had to take so much time and they lost so many men, and so they'd take revenge. But in this moment, what's crazy is Joshua is actually, this order is not an order out of revenge. Joshua is actually following God's command in this moment. Deuteronomy 20, God told Moses, when you take the promised land, you need to kick everyone out and kill everyone in your path so that you can receive the full promise I have for you. And we don't tend to like that very much because it just seems brutal. But the reality is that as much as God is a loving father, God is also a just judge. And when he pronounces judgment over people, it is as punishment for the actions they've done. And, and in this moment, God had pronounced judgment against the people living in Israel because of their sin, because they sacrificed their children to other gods, because of all the brutality. And God especially knew, God is especially a loving father and he wants to do what he can to protect his children. And in this moment, he's telling them, hey, if you don't kick them all out, they are going to become a stumbling block for you. They are going to lead you astray. They are going to lead you into wickedness. And so I want you to bring my judgment against them to protect yourselves and to protect your children and to protect those I love. But what I love about this story, it's, it's brutal, but what, what I love is the reality that when God pronounces judgment, when God brings judgment against sin, he always provides a way out because the person who survives, Rahab, we see one family survives Rahab because when the spies had come into Jericho and the people in Jericho had tried to hunt them down, she had hid them. And she had said, I know that your God will take this city. I have faith that God will take this city because we've heard what he did before. See, when God brings judgment, he always provides a way out. And part of the story in, in the whole grand story of human history that that we often try to avoid is the reality that there will come a day when God will come to judge the world. Matthew 25 tells us that when Jesus returns with all of his angels, he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous and the righteous will receive their due inheritance, but the unrighteous will perish. There's a day of judgment coming, but we live in this covenant period that is defined by God's love. And despite our sin, despite what we deserve, despite the judgment that we deserve because we are all messed up people, I am a messed up person. Despite the judgment I deserve, God provided a way out. And he decided, well, 
I love these people so much, I'm not willing to let them perish. I will let them perish over my dead body. And so he sent his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, born to face the same struggles and temptations that we face yet without sin, to come into this world, to take all of our sin, to take everything that we deserve judgment for upon himself. So that on the cross, he might die and be raised to life, having defeated death, hell, and the grave, and having set us free. See, the beauty of the God we serve is he is a loving father. And there will come a day where he will judge the world. But first and foremost, he is a loving father, and he wants to do everything he can to bring his children to him. You know, through the story of Joshua, we've been talking about having faith before the fight. Having faith in God to trust himself. When you come to a problem, you will, be, you will have the faith to trust him despite the problem. But the first level of faith that you need in order to endure the problems that you face in life is faith in Jesus Christ. So as we close this series and we close this service, I just want to give an opportunity to anyone who is here today, anyone under the sound of my voice who has never decided to follow Jesus before. I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. You know, God took me from being a liar, a manipulator, a debater, controlling, causing all kinds of problems, addicted to pornography, and he didn't make me perfect, but I'm progressing. And the reason I can stand on this stage and encourage you to trust in God despite whatever problems you have is because years and years and years ago, I said, God, I trust you. I believe in you. I don't know what this means, but take my brokenness and use me, Lord. So if you're here and you're saying, Darian, I... I have never made that decision to follow Jesus before. I've never decided to believe in Jesus, but I want to receive the new life he has for me. If I can just get everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads right now. In a moment, if that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to count to three. No one's looking around. No one's judging you. No one's staring at you wondering, are you going to raise your hand or whatnot? Nobody, nobody's going to know. It's between you and God. But if that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to count to three. And all I want you to do is slip up your hand and put it right back down. One, God loves you. Two, your life will never be the same. Three, if you want to believe in Jesus, just slip up your hand and put it right back down. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Hands going up across the room. His children are coming up. You guys can open your eyes. just want to say to those of you who raised your hand, we are so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And more than that, God is proud of you. Scripture tells us that whenever one child comes home, God is just so excited he throws a party. He's so excited when one child of his chooses to come home. And this promise is not to say that your life will now be perfect reality is, Jesus told us in 
John 16 that in this world you'll face persecution. But when you believe in him, the beauty of it is that it doesn't matter what comes your way. If you're walking in his will and trusting in him, it doesn't matter what problem comes. He will bring you through it. So I just want to encourage you, if you're one of the people who raised their hands, don't leave without letting someone know. You can let us know online at gateway.ac slash believe. We have a form you can fill out. We'd love to connect with you, give you resources and support you. Or if you came with somebody, make sure to let them know before you leave. Because we're not meant to do life alone. For the rest of us, if I can get everyone to stand right now. We're going to go back into worship in a moment. But before we do, I just want to pray over all of us. And as we pray, if you're here and you're saying, I don't trust God as much as I'd like to, you're saying, I need to learn to have faith before the fight. I need to trust God more than I do. That's you. All I want you to do is, as we pray, just put your hands out like this. It's a posture of receiving. And I just want to pray a blessing over you that you would receive everything God has for you. So, Father God, I pray over your church. This is your church, God. This is your children. These are your children who you love. And God, you know the struggles we face. You know the problems we face. You know the issues that we deal with and the struggles we all deal with as we try to believe in you and to trust you in the midst of storms, in the midst of problems, in the midst of fights that we don't know how to overcome. And Father, I just pray that you will honor our desire. Help us to trust you more. Teach us to trust you more. That we will be a church and people who no matter what comes your way, no matter if life is easy or life is hard, we will say, God, it doesn't matter what happens. I trust you. God, help us as we go into our weeks. And as we go into our lives and go into work and uh, facing all the struggles that we have to face, God, help us trust you no matter what that we will not run because of a city that seems impossible to capture a problem that seems impossible to overcome but our faith will be in you no matter what I pray this in your name